and take out your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 8. Just doing one verse today. You know what that means. It's going to be super short. Yes. Romans 8:28, working together for good of the saints. The best known verse of chapter 8, perhaps. People who don't know where it came from know it. It can easily become dislodged from its context after verse 27, before verse 29. People know the verse, maybe misuse the verse, but for the Christian, verse 28 is one of the most treasured verses of the Bible. On verse 28, believers of every age and place have stayed their minds It's been likened to, as John Stott said, a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. So if you're a weary Christian today, uh, we brought a pillow for you to rest your head upon. Tim Keller said, here is a promise that transforms the way we face the good, the bad, and the failings of life. And so let's look at it. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. A couple translations here I have for you on the screen. The NIV, just uh, part of it there says, in all things, God works for good. Or the J.B. Phillips translation Moreover, we know that to those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. And then John Stott, with his Greek background, says that the order of the words permits this translation. We know that for those who love God, he is working. For those who love God, he is working. Stott went on to say he's ceaselessly, energetically, and purposefully active on their behalf. Each word of verse 28 is strategic and is important and provides context, provides clause, provides necessity. And so we'll just break it apart this morning. It starts out and says, we know. We know, we consider. I remember when I was 19 years old and my dad passed away, a good friend of mine, Ben Zedwick, came up to me at my dad's funeral and said, Rory, Romans 8.28 comes to mind for you. And you got to remember that it says, we know that all things work together for good. Sometimes it doesn't seem like things are working together for good. But we have to have faith and trust and know this. And this was like a 19-year-old kid speaking this into my life. And all these years later, it just rings in my heart that he would encourage me this way. That we don't always see things working together for the good. But we know he is. Because he said he is. (laughs) 
And there are things that we don't know. You know, even just in this text, it says sometimes we don't even know how to pray as we ought. There's plenty that we don't know. But we're able to say, hey, one thing I do know, Romans 8, 28. It's good, it's memorizable, right? Short, concise, helpful, hopeful. We know that all things, all things, this must include the sufferings of verse 17 that we partake of if we're sons and daughters of God. This must include the groanings of verse 23 as we eagerly await the revelation of God's kingdom. The sufferings and the groanings are all part of the all things that God is working together for good. Uh, all things here should probably not be restricted just to sufferings. Sometimes we think that, that, oh, it's just, it's the sufferings. He's working the sufferings out for good. Uh, but it's also the good things, everything, all things, the good things. He's also working out towards our good and towards his glory. Uh, this includes all circumstances of life. Tim Keller says, and I have the quote for you here, he was very helpful in this study, all really means all. So it includes even our backsliding and our sin. Now, sin is always bad. Sin is always a terrible thing. And we will always live to regret its painful consequences in our life. But God is so great that he weaves it into our ultimate good. He can use even our sins and our failures to humble us and to teach us a right view of ourselves and a great appreciation of Christ. This week at the middle school group, occasionally I'll throw some funny Instagram reels up on the screen to lighten the kids up a little bit and, and cause us to chuckle before we get into Bible study. And one of the reels that I showed the middle school group was this grandmother baking cookies with her grandson. And he's probably three years old. And um, she must have known what was going to be happening during this experience because she dressed him up in a nice baker's hat, you know, and an apron. And as they're cooking and putting the ingredients into the bowl, uh, this kid is jumping in after every ingredient and grabbing a handful of it and shoving it in his mouth. And it's messy and he's aggressive and she's, you know, starts out like, oh no, don't, don't put the, no, don't eat the flour. And he's just flowers in his face, you know, and you know, a cube of butter and the whole, just a cube of butter, you know, and she's like, no, no, don't. And I mean, she is all over him and he's getting through her arms. The raw egg goes in there. He's shoving a raw egg in his face, you know, and, uh, and it just gets to her by the end of it, you know, there's just ingredients everywhere and then it flashes to everything's cleaned up and there's some nice little cookies on the plate. And he eats them and enjoys like that finished product, you know. But uh, Sandy Adams said, like the ingredients in a cake on their own, you can't stomach them. Just flour or just raw eggs or just butter by itself. Disgusting. Although I remember my cousin eating a whole cube of butter in one bite. I didn't eat butter for a while after watching that. But, <laughs> but when the baker puts all the components together under fire, they turn out to be delicious, you know, and it's just all these different events and circumstances of our life seem disgusting. They don't make sense by themselves. How could this make anything delicious? But when the baker puts all of these circumstances together under the fire of life, 
Man, there's going to be a wonderful finished product that we can rejoice in. John Murray said, there's not one detail that works ultimately for evil to the people of God. But in the end, only good will be their lot. What precedes verse 28? Oh man, in chapter 8 so far, we've had so many tears up on this stage as we think about the sufferings of life. Futility, frustration, bondage of corruption, groanings of creation, groanings of God's people. And in the context of it all, truth is shown that the Lord is able to lift us up above these tough things and encourage us that this isn't all happening haphazardly, but God is at work in it all. So we know that all things work. Work. It's an intentional word that these things aren't randomly happening, but there's actual labor going in to these things working for our good. And in this, there's this great interesting word in chapter 8, 28, It's the word together, working together. And typically, as I've read this, I've thought of it as, you know, all these different circumstances, they're the ingredients in a big bowl and they're working together, right? And yet, uh, uh, Peter R., and I had to love his last name as I read of him this week, Rogers with a D, it's kind of rare. Peter R. Rogers had argued for a sake that there's reference to God in the together. It's an idea of synergistic collaboration. Synergistic collaboration carried forward where God and the Spirit work together for the good of believers. So the context is immediately before this is that the Holy Spirit prays and groans. God is able to discern the Father, discerns what the Holy Spirit is saying for us as the Holy Spirit's praying. And they together are working these things for our good uh, at the throne of God himself. Uh, Read of, uh, I have to sound out his name here, Gignaliat, Gignaliat, um, suggested this working together, synergistic collaboration, and that it's all for good. It's all for good. Look at a couple references here. Romans 5, 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. So how could this all be working? How could the Father and the Spirit be working these things together for my good? Well, just even in the way that they work, tribulation works perseverance, character, hope. James tells us to count it all joy and to rejoice and to cheer whenever we fall into various trials. And I got to appreciate that he uses the word fall because usually when a trial comes, It's not a light ease into the shallow end of the pool, my friends. You know, it's a trip, it's a fall, and it's a roll into the deep end. You know, Um, when we fall into various, all kinds of different trials, we know that it's a testing of our faith that produces patience, has a perfect work, making us complete, lacking nothing. And so if we were to ask all of the heroes of the faith from, let's say, Hebrews chapter 11, 
if they enjoyed the trial in the moment that they were written about, that they were in the hall of faith for, they would all probably see, no, it, it seemed like a living hell at the moment. Um, but man, looking back from this side, I can see how the Lord was working something. Ask Joseph, who was betrayed by his own brothers and was sold into slavery and falsely accused by the first lady of Egypt, if it was a pleasant thing to go through, then ask him if God worked it together for good and ask him if he'd have done it again if he had the option. <laughs> and in Genesis 5.20, Peter Rogers suggested that there's an echo of Genesis 5.20 in Romans 8.28 where it said, but as for you, and you know this, it's at the end of Genesis Joseph is um, reunited with his brothers. The Lord has used Joseph to save not only Egypt, but the people of, of um, uh, his father's house. And all the betrayal and all the imprisonment and all of the, um, the trial and the struggle, he says to the brothers, as for you, you meant it evil against me. But God, God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. What a perspective to have. You meant it for evil. Satan meant it for evil. But the Lord meant it for good. To do something good. God was sovereignly working. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. Look at the book of Job. Job losing family, cattle, health. Uh, you know, for a lot of my life, I've just thought, you know, Job was the, just suffered more than anybody in all of creation ever. You know, and it's like, okay, um, now that I'm getting to know some of you, I don't know that Job has a lot on many of you. Many of you are, Job feels sorry for you. I think, you know, you've just been through it. And, uh, you know, Job says, 42.11, and they consoled him and they comfort him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. And so we actually see, and Job would say it later on as well, that it was the Lord that brought these trials. He understands the sovereign hand of God, even overarching Satan's purposes, that God is working together something good. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, Job attributed God's sovereignty to the, the will of God, even in the trials that Job would go through. James 5.11 says, Indeed, we actually count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end and intended by the Lord intended by the Lord in Job's life, that the Lord was very compassionate and merciful. All that Job went through, intended by God, and how is God reflected upon in the midst of the book of Job? Compassionate and merciful. Esther, beautiful virgin, the most beautiful in the kingdom, what her becoming queen actually seemed to be a bit of a tragedy, you know? I mean, this guy was just using and abusing these women, but Mordecai tells her in a note in Esther 4.14, could it not be for such a time as this 
that God has brought you to this place through these interesting, difficult circumstances that God maneuvers people into the most horrific circumstances that he could accomplish his purposes. First Peter, a few more verse references here. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do uh, not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so we're just hearing these words in the New Testament about just the things that we're going through, that they actually work something good. Perseverance, character, hope, um, salvation and for people. Um, for such a time as this, God might be working behind the scenes. Uh, he's working genuineness of faith, refined in the fire, brings praise, honor, glory to God, receiving at the end of it all the salvation of our souls. Deuteronomy 8, 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart. So do you see how it's working good? The, the wilderness wanderings humbled, tested what was in the heart. If you'd keep his commandments or not, he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, but was faithful, fed you with manna in the wilderness. Manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. So in the midst of all the suffering, he was faithful, providing manna, angels food, miraculous bread. You know, your, your shoes didn't even wear out in the midst of it all these 40 years so that you should know in your heart that as man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. And if you went down to verse 16 there in Deuteronomy 8, he fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. To do you good in the end. So maybe you just would write in your journal and in the margin of your Bible, the trials I'm going through, God will work good for me in the end. Ultimately, there's no accidents. There's no accidents. The Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is even working in the flip of the coin uh, this has got to lead us to relax as people. Learn to relax. I mean, I, I'm needing to learn to relax. Like the Lord's, I thought I had that down. And the Lord is in the midst of our trial. Just, I, I've got to learn that in my trusting, I need to rest in Him. Got to stop eating anxious bread. Try to control it all. This wonderful text leads us to a great logical deduction by the uh, great hymn writer 
Uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he says in one hymn, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. So we know that God works all things together for good. And then here's the clause, friends. The necessary limitation, John Stott says. Tim Keller said, all for good, but not for all. It's like a little bit of a tweaked Three Musketeers saying, (laughs) right? All for good, but not for all. All right, there are necessary limitations to this. This is not a universal truth for all mankind, but it is for those who, do you see it in your Bible? For those who love God. For those who love God. Later on in the chapter, we'll see that uh, his love for us, but right now, our love for him. Who are the recipients of this great promise? Those who love God. The defining characteristics of those who are Christians are not if they dress like Christians, talk like Christians, know all the Christian phrases, have a bit of a reformed look to them, but if they love God, not just if they affirm something, believe in something, if they love Him. A distinguishing mark of a Christian is that he loves God. And I was looking at my old notes from 14, uh, rather it'd be, let's see, be 12 years ago. And in my notes it said, Russell this week in the car saying, Laney, do you love God? So he must have been five and she must have been almost three. Laney, do you love God? And then he said, do you hate sin? (laughs) I was like, whoa. His mom must have been discipling him uh, very well. Not do you have a fascination with divinity, but do you love God? The Shema that the Jews pray every day, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have. Here are a few things that are not loving God. A fleeting emotion. A fleeting emotion. An intellectual affirmation of the truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke towards this. I believe that Paul had a special reason for using the term love rather than the term believing at this point. One of the best ways whereby we can decide immediately if we love God or not is our reaction to adversity. There are many people who, when trials and tribulations arise, they give up. They feel that they've been let down. And so it's not said here for those who believe in God or believe in a God, but those who love God. So it's not an intellectual affirmation of the truth. Loving God is not loving his gifts. Oh, I love forgiveness. I want forgiveness and need forgiveness of my sins or love justification or escape from hell or heaven. I love heaven. All right. Uh, Loving God 
does not mean in its essence uh, just that you are forgiven or not going to hell. Nobody wants a guilty conscience or uh, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll get out of it by any means possible. It's not just not wanting to go to hell that makes you love God. This type of love and these types of loves are fleeting. Keller said, if you love God for who he is in himself, you make a commitment and you endure difficulty. But if you're using God for what he gives you, you bail out when suffering comes. You'll bail out when suffering comes. Loving God is the basic direction of Christians. One of the greatest signs that we love God is this, obedience. Obedience because of love. Look at all these verses. Rapid fire, are you ready? Matthew 23, 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. It's a command to love God. So when we're loving him, we're obeying. We're obeying the first and greatest commandment. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest manifest myself to him. John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Keller said, love is setting the heart on God so that in all you do, you determine to please him. 1 John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. 1 John 5, 3 is the next verse. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. It's not, oh, I've got to love him with all my heart. I can't worship idols. Can't steal my neighbor's stuff and covet his stuff and lie about people and, oh gosh, you know. But you know, worldly people, it's like a total burden. It's a total burden to not steal something. Just can't not do it, you know? And, uh, and by the grace of God, he saved us from that. And with his spirit in us and a new heart and a new start that he's given us, we hate sin. We love God. We desire to obey. We act like we love him because we love him. In John 21, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Then act like it. Then act like it, essentially. Loving God is a reflex to the called heart. And that leads us to the second clause. First clause of this great promise is for those who love God. The second clause is for those who are called according to his purpose. We see God's action to them. We just saw God's or our action to God, love towards God. We see that's based in or a reflex of uh, God's sovereignty towards us, that God's actions towards us cause us to love him. Their love for him is a sign and token of his prior love 
for them. And so instead of going immediately to 828 and using it as a mantra for the whole world that seems easily applicable, Paul wrote to those who are in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. That's in the introduction that the Romans were called to be saints. So this verse is not for everyone. It's not a statement that you can just simply say to anybody as if it's a self-help notion. And I believe I have this for you from Keller. Since Paul says the entirety of life circumstances or all things work for the good, only of those who love God, there's strong implication that they do not work for the good of those who do not love him. The text says that both the good and the bad things of our life have a good effect on us only because of how God overrules and uses them in our life. And so here it is. And so it looks as though both the good and the bad things that happen to a non-Christian work ill for them. But when an unbelieving heart experiences a string of success and pleasures, it only reinforces the illusion and can make worse sins in the human heart. Pride, overconfidence, self-centeredness, etc. grow and take over. And so for everyone who's not a Christian, the opposite is the case. Nothing is working towards your good. We know from the New Testament, the wrath of God is upon the sons and daughters of disobedience. Even if it seems good at the moment, it's working towards death, destruction in that person's life. But God is gracious. There's this sovereign aspect to it. He's calling. He's wooing. The hope of the gospel beseeches us to repentance. There's an aspect of this verse where you can just appreciate and enjoy some translations that throw the word the in front of called, that he's working good for the called. And it's very specific. It has this reformed Calvinistic thing to it, right? Ah, for the good of those who are the called. All right? And there's something to that. Not every translation puts the word the in there. All right? So it's also just good for called. And, you know, maybe we're just not so cage stage about how we grip on that word the, you know? I don't know. You can appreciate it if you want to. But God sovereignly loves us for no other reason but his grace. He loves us because he loves us. We're the called according to his purpose and a reflex, just a, a, a doctor's rubber mallet to the knee is that we love him back. We love God. We want to obey God. We want to say no to sin. He's working good, friends. What does this mean? How you interpret this good will determine how you leave this service and walk out of here. Do you think that God is working all things towards our materialistic good? Towards our self-centeredness? Towards our temporary, temporary circumstantial good? Is that what he's working out here? How is he working it towards our good? 
I think over the last few weeks, we've been seeing that God refines us. God teaches us to trust in Him, to obey, to humble us, to work character in us, endurance in us. Not always and not necessarily our materialistic good. Not maybe the good for our career necessarily, but just good for us. Good for character. Good for His kingdom. Brian Chappelle, uh, he wrote this book uh, regarding Christ-centered preaching. He was a professor, I don't know if he still is, at Covenant Theological Seminary. Put free resources online for Christ-centered preaching. So good. Many people love Brian Chappelle. Listen to what he says here. The universe is being constrained in its course, bent in new directions for the good of the bride of Christ, which is the church. As much as our perceptions perceptions seem to deny this truth, the battles that rage, the leaders that rise, the events that occur do not thwart his agenda. History, and I don't use this word often, inexorably marches forward to triumph of the church of Jesus Christ. He's using all things, even the tragedies of the fallen world, which you and I will go through, by the way, to shape and reshape the world for her sake. The whole creation is being conformed to the purpose that served the glory of Christ's church. The entire world is Christ's bouquet to his bride in the end. So the ultimate purpose for allowing all things is for the good of his bride. Charles Spurgeon said, He who said all things work together will soon prove to you that there that here is a harmony must supposed to say there. There is a harmony in the most discordant parts of your life. You shall find when your biography is written that the black page did but harmonize with the bright one that the dark and cloudy day was just a glorious foil to set forth the brighter noontide of your joy. We may have tragedy now, but it will be transformed to blessing. In our home group discussion this week, uh, Rachel Farger and Casey brought up this great thing, and I mentioned, oh, I know that from Corey Tin Boom, and then it was in previous notes of mine, so I'm going to share it with you guys where Corey Tin Boom said, life can look like the backside of a tapestry. Threads seem not to lead anywhere. But look from the other side, and it's a beautiful work of art. And so at the beginning of today, I mentioned John Stott saying that Romans 8.28 is a soft pillow to the weary head. I read it in his commentary. Then I looked in my notes and I had R.A. Torrey said, Romans 8.28 is a soft pillow to the weary head. I'm like, well, who said it originally? So I Googled it this morning. And like every preacher that's ever preached a sermon is attributing this to themselves. So Rory Rogers said, Romans 8.28 is a soft pillow to the weary head. Romans 8, you guys... From the last few weeks and what we'll see to conclude it and what Jeff did last week with Psalm 44 and Romans 8, Paul is first century trash talking. 
by saying, bring it on. It'll only make us better in the end. Paul went through it all and we're going to go through it all and we'll never be alone. We'll be with the one who works all things together in the Trinity, working and laboring for good in us. Will you stand with me and we'll have the worship team come on up. Lord, we want to rest in this promise that you are at work. Just a number of weeks of looking at the lot for a Christian is not all rainbows and unicorns and kittens and flowery grassy meadows. The lot for the Christian is also, well, maybe no unicorns. Or kittens. But with the still waters come the valleys of the shadow of death. And Lord, even though we would walk through those, as David wrote, we will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with us. And your rod and your staff, that tool in your hand that Sometimes pokes, sometimes prods, sometimes hooks the neck, directs us, tends us, protects us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Lord, we know Job went through it. Lord, we know you went through it. Lord, we see your suffering and how you arose victorious and you give us the power to suffer like you, not only through persecution, but through just the events of life, disease, interpersonal relationship, conflict, frustrations, corruption, Sin, even as we learn today, even sin. Lord, you can bring us through it. Think of what my pastor always says. If God leads you to it, he'll bring you through it. Lord, get us through it. Shining brighter, purely refined, humbled, trusting you, Happy for your provision of the manna for the day. Happy for your provision that the soles of our shoes aren't wearing out in the midst of it, Lord. Lord, maybe we could apply that to just the soles of our hearts, Lord, and that our hearts wouldn't swell in the midst of it, God, that we would have endurance in the midst of the wandering. And Lord, just in this place where there are those painful things and as we're learning even the good things, all of these circumstances, Lord, work them for our good. Work them for our glory. Lord, prevent us from using the good things 
and making them idols in our life. As you've worked good things, Lord, our flesh, our sinful nature can esteem those things as so great that we are distracted from you. Lord, instead, would you let us use those good things and would you use those good things for for our good, for your glory. Lord, where there are wounds, where there's pain, where there's fights, humble us, Lord. Lord, where we've been stiff-necked and rebellious and hearing you calling us to the left, Lord, but we want to go to the right, Lord, soften the stiffness of our necks today. Let us learn humility. Crazy phrase in the book of Hebrews that says, even Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Lord, would you teach us obedience in these times? Make us moldable, pliable. We say amen to the one that works all things together for our good as we love you, as we obey you, as we have reflex to you calling us sovereignly. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, let's worship together. song is a good reminder of Romans 8 just really emphasizing the new covenant, the new promise from the Lord, and that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as Christians. The Holy Spirit's work after we've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus and born again, we have the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts and dwelling in us, giving us a heart to obey and We just pray that you would help us to walk in the Spirit, to walk in obedience. Pray for that Holy Spirit's just continual encouragement that you're working something good in it all. Lord, let us not walk in fleshly assent or intellectual assent only to these truths. But Lord, Spirit-empowered life in these things. Lord, let us live as the church in this community this week, having a new joy in the midst of it all as we speak to coworkers, as we drive in the car with just our work crew, as we're just visiting with other mothers and parents at games and just so easy to complain, to be mad and frustrated and bitter and angry and Lord, that as we speak at all, Lord, we would have this assurance, a confident assurance by the Spirit that you're working something good. Lord, we would just have that heart of evangelism to the people around us, that we would desire them to come to know you, to know forgiveness of sins. Lord, that they would love you with the true love we speak of today, that, Lord, you would, as D.L. Moody said, Lord, would you call the elect. Would you save the elect and then elect some more? Lord, we just long for our friends and our family and our coworkers to be saved and these things to be worked together in their life as well. 
be glorified this week. In Jesus' name, amen.